0: These conversations about life-sustaining treatment, about end-of-life preferences, they really help us to define what matters most to us and how we can live really well until the end of our lives.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa DiDonato. And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation
2: in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. On our next special COVID-19 episode of Amplify Nursing, We talk with adult and gerontological primary care nurse practitioners, Elise Tarby and Brianna Morgan. Elise and Brianna are board-certified adult gerontology primary care nurse practitioners with advanced certifications in hospice and palliative care, as well as doctoral students at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Nursing. Today, we discuss the importance of advanced care planning in the era of COVID-19. With demands on both hospitals and providers expanding, and resources predicted to become even more scarce, there has been heightened public discourse about rationing. Our guests will discuss how advanced care planning has increased importance in this landscape in order to support people with an increased risk of dying, as well as health care providers and family members who may be facing these difficult decisions.
1: Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Elise, why don't you start with talking to us a little bit about the work that you two are doing?
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We are grateful for the opportunity to talk to you both today. Bree and I are both palliative care nurse practitioners and we're also researchers at the University of Pennsylvania um, School of Nursing. And we've been thinking a lot about where palliative care really fits into this whole pandemic. And one thing we've been talking a lot about is we've been seeing a lot of discussion um, in the media and um, amongst our colleagues about concern for a surge in our healthcare system where patients overwhelm our ability to take care of them, especially in the ICU with things like vents and um, critical staff. And we've been hearing discussion about how do we best allocate those resources? And I know that there's been conversations about rationing that raise a lot of ethical questions for us. But a conversation we think we need to be having at the same time is, really about the increased importance of advanced care planning in the setting of the coronavirus pandemic, um, because we really wanna make sure now more than ever that we're aligning treatment with people's wishes, with what they want.
3: Yeah, and this is Mm Brie. I just wanted to jump in there and um, really echo what Elise is saying and frame this really as, you know, I think when we talk about allocation of resources in the context of scarce resources, we're really talking about preparing. We're doing a lot of preparing for what is ahead. And while discussion of preparedness for allocation of resources is an essential part of being prepared, we also really think that part of that preparedness conversation is how can we be prepared for what our health might look like in the future, given our current um, public health situation?
1: Yeah, considering our current public health situation, that it kind of throws a little bit of a monkey wrench into a lot of things, I think. Considering the fact that most of assisted living facilities have been kind of shut down for the last few weeks and people haven't been able to get in to see their loved ones or talk to their loved ones, are you seeing, I mean, I would imagine it's probably a potential problem if conversations haven't really been had, and now you can't get in there to sit and talk to people, and you have to make this decision like over the phone. What do you think about the um, logistics of a conversation like this during this time?
3: Angela, I think that's such a great point. I think um, that there are two ways that we can think about this, especially in assisted living facilities. First is from the perspective of the staff within the assisted living facility who has much more um, and may still have a lot of face-to-face contact with residents, um, that conversations could still be happening between staff and um, residents of assisted living facilities. But then also how do we think creatively um, when we are physically distant about being able to have these conversations maybe virtually or maybe over the phone? I think there is, there is some precedent and even some research in um, the advanced care planning community about how to have these conversations well virtually.
0: I just wanted to kind of add on to what Bree was saying. I completely agree that The context has changed of not just assisted living facilities, but also what it looks like to be hospitalized right now um, with limited ability to have visitors. How dramatic of a difference that can be when you you have a loved one who might be hospitalized and you're not able to see them and not able to see how they're doing. And usually these are evolving conversations, conversations that we can have over time at, at the bedside with loved ones and with um, individuals who are sick. And right now that's, that's being disrupted. And so we've seen different systems doing different things in terms of, you know, can you FaceTime with family and have them see, see what's happening in the room to really give that sense of connection and understanding of um, prognosis but also I think it really raises the importance for all of us to have these conversations before we get into a setting where we are kind of rapidly needing to make um, decisions about life-sustaining preferences. And so brie and I really wanna emphasize, like we need to think about this, yes, for people who are at high risk with this coronavirus pandemic, but also for, for everyone because really everyone is walking around with increased risk right now.
1: How, does, how do these conversations usually go? or what, what do you recommend the conversation start with when, when we're starting advanced planning?
3: Sure, I can jump in on that. This is Bree. There are a number of different conversation guides and trainings that are available for um, on the clinician side of this conversation, as well as targeted toward the general population. So we have some tools uh, in our toolbox that can help both clinicians and people have these conversations. Typically, um, I'll just give an example, maybe from my clinical practice as a palliative care nurse practitioner, I might walk into a visit with um, a person living with a serious life-limiting cancer diagnosis. Um, And what I wanna do is I think about the setting that we're in, is this a good place for us to have the conversation um, you know our, our, I'm in a clinic so I can do these in a pretty private place where there's um, not a lot going on but if you're in a hospital setting it might be busy, especially um, right now. So sometimes you you think about how the, the setting might influence the conversation and optimize it as best you can. The next important thing is to think about who is there. Again, something we don't always have the luxury of during a healthcare crisis, um, but as, as much as we can to do that pre-planning of, I'd like to talk to you about what's ahead with your illness. Is there anybody who should be here who you'd like to join us for this conversation? And we can set that up in the future. Um, even just taking an hour to wait and set that up, it's important. Um, and then it's starting the conversation. You know, Elise and I always talk about first assessing somebody's understanding of what's going on, asking for permission to share your understanding, and then really assessing the goals and values of somebody um, as they have lived their life. So it's much less about what you would want in death and more about who you are as a person and how you've lived your life, what's important to you, that can then inform the choices if you were in a a life-limiting situation.
0: There are a couple, as she mentioned, there are a couple resources that are available for clinicians. and in having these conversations. And a, a resource that we have both used is Vital Talk. Um, and they have actually made videos available online right now for clinicians to be kind of see how these conversations can go in the setting of um, COVID-19. So what a conversation might look like over the phone with a family member right now, which I think is really useful.
1: Yeah. So what do you think also about the blanket statements that some healthcare systems are considering just making anyone with coronavirus a DNR to both spare resources and limit the risk of providers contracting the disease in the midst of a code situation?
0: If I could jump in um, to answer that. I I understand where that impetus is coming from. I really do um, because there is such a need right now to think about our society's health from a public health perspective and think about, okay, if we have scarce resources, how do we make sure that we're using those in situations where it would have the most benefit? And also, how can we make sure that we're limiting our um, vital healthcare workers from exposure to COVID-19 in situations that may not be fruitful may you know may not have a good outcome at the same time i think that we have a default in our healthcare system that brie and i have discussed many times where we assume that everyone wants aggressive life-sustaining treatment and everyone gets this default unless we have a careful conversation and my experience has been that many people don't want that default and especially now um, if people are understanding, you know, with this disease you may have increased likelihood of dying and not just dying, dying in a situation where you may not be able to be surrounded by your loved ones. Um, a lot of people may decide, I don't even want to go to the hospital in this situation because I know I wouldn't want to go to the ICDU. I understand where that conversation is coming from, but I, I think we can alleviate a lot of that decision making by having these conversations earlier. and. In mass quantities right now, I think we need to be thinking about, in the same way, how can we, you know, amp up our PPE? How can we also um, scale up these conversations? And, and like we mentioned, you know, it's for healthcare providers to have, but it's also for the general public to have these conversations. There are there are a lot of resources available for just individuals to be able to talk to your parents, your spouse, um, your friends to So that everyone can kind of offload the healthcare system and uh, from having to be the ones who are having this conversation, maybe for the first time and maybe in a in a pretty desperate place.
3: Yeah, Elisa, I think you make such a a good point there that um, this discussion about um, you know blanket DNRs is, is coming from a place of. Healthcare providers being really worried about what the future of this looks like, um, and and feeling really empathetic towards that. Um, I I love thinking about this as how do we mix the public health thought with the person centered individual thought of do I have the option and can I have the option to make some self determination in terms of what the future of my health looks like. Um, and I, I think we can even infuse some of that into our discussions with, with people, both in a clinical setting and as human beings out there in society. Um, we could even put that to, um, to people to include in their advance directive to say, if we were in a situation where resources were limited, would that change your decision making for yourself? And that really takes that public health view of resources into an individualized conversation about uh, healthcare decision-making.
1: Yeah, I feel feel like in the climate that there is right now, I feel as though many people are kind of, and we talked a little bit about this with Allison and Carolyn the other day, that people are almost getting really used to the idea, well, all the old people are going to die. And although you know they do have a much higher mortality than everyone else they're not necessary it's not necessarily a death sentence you know i was looking at some statistics earlier that said you know somewhere around 10 to 15 ish percent is what kind of what we're thinking um which means they actually have a really good chance of survival. So, how does that play into the picture as well for somebody who, you know, maybe is fairly healthy otherwise and yet contracts this a very severe case of this disease?
3: I think this is such uh, an important thing to think about. Um, I have been hearing a lot of public discourse lately saying, "Oh, well, we don't have to worry. We, the young and healthy people." but because this is really only affecting people as they age or people with chronic um, illnesses and i think that kind of language can be so hurtful for the population who it does affect which is actually a large majority of our population in fact the largest demographic in the us is people 65 and older and more than half of people who are 65 and older have two or more chronic comorbidities. So this is really a huge portion of our population who's at risk. And Mm. there's a lot of public discourse around, well, it's okay. So I think it's really important for us to be really careful about how we talk about risk to make sure that we're not imbuing ageism or ableism into that um, conversation, especially as healthcare providers, because we are have really been very fortunate to be a lot of the public facing conversation about this. Um, so so being very thoughtful about how we talk about risk, especially as it relates to a conversation about scarce resources. So would we consider risk in resources? I think there are some, some well-argued and pretty well-evidence-based models that are out there that don't take into account things like um, age or comorbidities until um, very late down the line, that they're thinking about other things before um, thinking about that. And certainly not thinking about a bright line cutoff about age, but it's much more complex than that.
0: Yeah, I just want to echo what Bree said um, in terms of, you know, these conversations about unilateral DNRs or um, conversations about, quote unquote, rationing. There are evidence-based frameworks out there out of Pittsburgh, New York State has one, that are um, well thought out, um, that have ethical principles to guide health systems um, in ways of allocating resources and uh, one of the things that I think is so important about the um, Pittsburgh framework that's actually I think been adopted at the across the state of Pennsylvania is that it was created with community members and so it wasn't just healthcare providers saying oh well these are the decisions that we you know think are important to make in terms of who has the highest likelihood of Surviving um, through critical illness. Uh, it was also made with community members so that when we're talking about things like age cutoffs, that really wouldn't fly with the community. And I think it's just, it's so important that when we're having these conversations about, um, you know, doing the most good for the most amount of people, that the conversations are really grounded in what our community is saying as well.
1: So, Bree, do you think that attitude? Or the mindset of not considering like age cutoffs or you know blanket algorithms for end of life planning is because of the fact that we sort of focus on the individual self in our culture and not so much the public health aspect of it.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I think that those two things, the the public health view and the individual view, are often at odds, and there's some, some tension between those in our healthcare system. You know, we, we don't have a, a national healthcare system, so um, healthcare really plays out uh, in sort of these regional pockets rather than a national conversation about resources and, and public health. This coronavirus pandemic is really making us think more nationally about the public health perspective on our day-to-day lives, um, that it's really impacting pretty much every every day, and um, I think we can all all remember when things things started to change, and and every day we thought about this. Um, so so I think it's it's finding a balance between both the public health perspective of how can we do the greatest good for the greatest number of people while still honoring the fact that in in the us we do really focus on individualism and um the each person has the right to um make choices about what kind of health care they do want to receive especially if they're in a life-limiting end-of-life situation making sure that we can kind of find a balance but still still honor that individual choice
0: if i can just add on to that brie and i were talking about how this pandemic has really it has the opportunity to show us the strengths and the weaknesses in our system and we can see the strengths in all of the innovations that um healthcare providers are doing right now at the bedside um thinking about ways to you know use vents for more than one person thinking about ways that we can manufacture PPE out of nowhere, seemingly. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's such a strength. And I would say a weakness of our public health system is that we don't have a framework and an emphasis on having advanced care planning conversations across the lifespan and saying, this is important for us to talk about now. You know, I just had my first child. It, It was important. My husband and I talked about, what I would want in the setting of, um, you know, something terrible happening during my pregnancy or delivery. Um, that was, that's an important time to consider this. I think it's an important time to consider advanced care planning in the setting of a pandemic. Now, we, have, we all have increased risk of being hospitalized and using intensive care resources. Um, being diagnosed with a life-limiting illness, that's another time to revisit this. Um, you know recurrence of disease that's another time i think we don't we don't really think of advanced care planning as something that we should be doing across the lifespan with our providers throughout the healthcare system but it really is
1: what would you two like to see done a little bit differently right now both in terms of advanced care planning and even palliative care
3: i think um, one of the things that i've been thinking quite a bit about is um, there's been such a phenomenal surge of people, especially healthcare workers, um, really wanting to do something. Whether you're a nurse and you're saying, "Let me renew my license so I can go in and pick up shifts," or um, thinking about, you know, helping your neighbors with childcare, or groceries. I think one of the things that we could do, especially as nurses, we're the largest. Healthcare worker force out there in the U.S. at least um, is to think about how we could be good good stewards of these conversations um, in our everyday lives, um, not just in our healthcare workspaces. So even if you aren't the person who can run into the hospital and provide the bedside care, you can um, talk to your friends, talk to your spouse, talk to your parents. Um, about their wishes and really start that conversation and make it a conversation that's about their goals and values. Um, so it's not it's not so scary. It doesn't feel like um, you know this is a conversation. I want to talk to you about death and dying. I want to talk to you about how you want to live. Um, so that is definitely a call that I'd like to put out there to um, all the nurses and healthcare workers out there um, is to start having these conversations broadly.
0: Yeah, I think that was um, just so well said, Bree. and there was a recent article in the New York Times that had questions that people could ask their loved ones, and it was just so beautiful to go through. You know, the questions, like Brie said, they're not, it's not about treatment preferences, that's a piece of it, but it's really about what makes your life meaningful, how do you define good quality of life, what's a good day for you? And what would be unacceptable for you? What would be an unacceptable state for you to live in? And how can we help you avoid that? And okay, now that I'm hearing you say those things, can we talk about your treatment preferences and how we can make sure that we're aligning your treatments with what you've already told me is important to you and how you define meaning in your life? Bree and I talk a lot about you know, being in palliative care. We know that these conversations about life-sustaining treatment, about end-of-life preferences, they really help us to define what matters most to us and how we can live really well until the end of until the end of our lives. And I'd, I'd like to have kind of just a public health awareness that these aren't morbid conversations. They're conversations that really help us all prepare to make sure that we're honoring the lives of our loved ones and um, and um, ourselves in situations where we may not have a voice.
1: At least that's a fantastic perspective, and it's not. One that I think many healthcare providers, people in general think about taking the conversation from that perspective, basing your your wants and wishes on how you wanna live versus what dying looks like.
0: I do research on um, kind of how individuals with serious illness face these kind of big existential issues about what makes life meaningful and what's the purpose of my life in the setting of these day-to-day conversations about prognosis and treatment. And I can tell you that those things are all sprinkled throughout And so yeah if we can focus on those things i think it helps to make the rest of the conversation a little easier i think another fact
3: that um you know helps as as i think about our role as palliative care providers um is to realize how few people are having these conversations um so only about half of people in the u.s have had a converse any kind of conversation that could be I'm watching TV with my mom and I say, I I wouldn't want that when they start doing CPR on um, like Chicago Med. Only about a third of people have actually documented any kind of advanced care planning uh, in the form of designating a healthcare proxy or saying anything about decisions. Um, But also what we do know is that when these conversations do happen, people are really glad they do um we get in palliative care get a lot of pushback from um providers who say you know i don't want to be the person who has this conversation i don't want them to feel like i'm i'm giving up hope or i'm bringing something negative to the table um and i think the reframing that elise was talking about this as talking about life and living um is really resonant for people that when the conversation happens and happens well um, it can be really relieving and um, actually improve people's quality of life.
1: That's a fantastic point, Bray, and I really appreciate both of you coming on and talking talking to us about this today. It's such a critical point considering what we're expecting in the surge ahead in the next few weeks.
0: Yeah, thank you um, for giving us the opportunity to talk about something that we both feel so passionate about and that we feel is um so important, and we also just are big fans of the pod.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. We think that uh, um, nurses have a lot to offer to the conversation, especially around advanced care planning and living with the uncertainty of um, something like a pandemic, Um, and that nurses are really well-suited to help The public respond to a crisis like this. So I'm really honored to have have the platform to be able to do that with you guys.
1: Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing.
2: Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can please do us a solid and rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.